0: Episode 39, Funding Better COVID Propaganda, The Mercury Project, Part 1. Question, if you are going to plough over $27 US dollars into funding research on why people are rejecting COVID-19 injections, would you name your research project after the Roman god of financial gain, commerce, trickery and thieves, not to mention the guide of souls to the underworld? Welcome to The Mercury Project. According to the promotional spiel from the Social Science Research Foundation, the non-profit organisation which spawned the project, quote, the Mercury Project is a global consortium of researchers dedicated to combating the impacts of mis- and disinformation on public health and to finding interventions that support the spread and uptake of accurate health information, end of quote. Oh, sounds nice, doesn't it? I sure wouldn't want to be exposed to miss and disinformation on something as vitally important as public health. I bet you wouldn't either. Let's keep reading. Quote, The Mercury Project, which alludes to the ancient Roman god Mercury of messages and communication. My side note, funny how they left out the bit about financial gain, commerce, trickery, theft and guiding souls to the underworld. will fund researchers to discover new evidence-based data-driven tools, methods, and interventions to counter mis- and disinformation and to support the spread and uptake of accurate health information. These solutions will be an essential resource for social media and technology companies and for global policymakers as they build an information ecosystem that supports the sharing of accurate and effective health information, end of quote. Right. So the non-profit Social Research Council is going to be channeling tax-deductible donations into research to develop strategies which will then be used by for-profit big tech companies and by both elected and non-elected policymakers to make sure that populations are exposed to health information that is deemed to be accurate, by whom they don't say but I imagine you can guess, and effective, at what they also don't say but you might like to have a stab at that too. Did anything in particular prompt this intense interest in mis- and disinformation? Let's keep reading, shall we? Quote, the Mercury Project will provide research grants over a three-year period to researchers and organisations for the purpose of a, estimating the causal impacts of mis- and disinformation on online and offline outcomes in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, including health, economic and or social outcomes, differential impacts across socio-demographic groups, and quantifying the global costs of those impacts. B. estimating the causal impacts of online or offline interventions in the United States, Africa, Asia and Latin America and the Caribbean to increase uptake of COVID-19 vaccines and other recommended public health measures by countering mis- and disinformation, including interventions that target the producers or the consumers of mis- and disinformation, or that increase confidence in reliable information. The mercury project will also provide a suite of research sharing and policy development activities for grantees and other invited organizations to enable more effective policy and regulatory responses to current and future public health emergencies the work of the consortium will provide a foundation for data-driven policy and regulatory interventions enabling the creation of a healthier information environment end of quote ah Now we're getting there. They want to find out why many people in 16 low and middle income countries, namely Bolivia, Brazil, Cote d'Ivoire, Kenya, Malawi, Ghana, Nigeria, Rwanda, Senegal, Sierra Leone, South Africa, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, India, Mexico and Haiti, as well as a substantial minority in the United States, rejected COVID-19 jabs. They're pretty sure it has something to do with wrongthink that has been disseminated online. So they're going to experiment with a variety of messaging techniques to see which ones are the most successful at convincing people to believe what they want them to believe. They're also going to seek out better ways of shutting down voices that contradict their messaging and help big tech out by developing better algorithms for suppressing content that doesn't have the official stamp of approval so that when the next big scary virus is released, I mean breaks out, the tax cattle will only be exposed to the kind of health information that they agree with. Now, since the Social Science Research Council is a non-profit, and we all know that such organizations are entirely benevolent, we can rest assured that the people running the Mercury Project are very well-intentioned. I'm sure glad about that, because if they weren't, they could be trampling all over fundamental human rights, such as freedom of speech, Not to mention aggressively censoring dissenting scientists and health practitioners who might have valuable information that the public has a right to know for reasons that have nothing to do with our health and well-being. Do you detect a note of sarcasm, dear listener? Good. You're paying attention. Before we dig further into who and what is behind the Mercury project, let's take a look at how the 17 countries the project is targeting have done in terms of some of the key concerns that supposedly instigated the project. Uptake of COVID-19 injections, deaths attributed to COVID-19, and excess mortality. First, total doses of COVID-19 injections administered per 100 people in the countries that the Mercury Project is studying, with an aggregate of high-income countries thrown in for comparison. Now, you really are going to want to take a look at the post accompanying this podcast episode to see the charts, but I'll describe what's in those charts as well as I can in this audio format. Firstly, in Brazil, there have been 219 doses of a COVID-19 so-called vaccine administered per 100 people comprising of 165 administered as part of an initial two-dose protocol, and then 55 administered as booster doses that compares to the aggregate in high income countries of 208 doses administered per 100 people 151 in the initial two-dose protocol and 57 boosters then we have rwanda at 194 covid 19 vaccines administered per 100 people then the united states 183 mexico 165 India 151, Bolivia 120, and then we get to the African countries, all of which are below 100 doses of COVID 19 so called vaccines administered per 100 people, with the lowest number of doses being administered in Kenya at 39 doses per 100 of population, Tanzania at 31, Nigeria at 30, Malawi at 21, Senegal at 15, and Haiti at just 3.2 doses of COVID 19 injections administered per 100 people. Note that Brazil, Rwanda and the United States have had uptake rates that are comparable to the aggregate of high-income countries, which raises the question, why target these countries for study? Are there just possibly subpopulations within these countries, say ethnic minorities or partisans of a particular political persuasion perhaps, who have been particularly resistant to pro-injection messaging? Now let's look at deaths attributed to COVID-19, acknowledging that both countries and jurisdictions within them have taken varying approaches to categorizing such deaths, which makes comparisons fraught with hazards. And even the most superficial inspection of the graph in the post accompanying this podcast episode will clearly show you that the United States has the highest number of cumulative confirmed COVID-19 deaths per million people in the last 12 months, followed by the aggregate of high-income countries and then Mexico, Brazil, South Africa and Bolivia, with the countries with the lowest death rates being in order Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Senegal, Tanzania, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Kenya, Haiti, Malawi and Rwanda. Notice how the countries with the lowest uptake of COVID-19 injections, that is Haiti, Senegal, Malawi, Nigeria, Tanzania, Kenya, Sierra Leone, and Ghana, have the lowest death counts from the disease, while those with the highest uptakes, Brazil, the United States, and Mexico, along with high-income countries, have the highest death counts. Rwanda is an interesting outlier with high injection rates, but a low COVID-attributed death rate. I've not dug into Rwanda's injection campaign, except to ascertain that they are using a mixture of Western, Chinese and Russian products. That is Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Sinopharm and Sputnik V. If you, dear listener, can offer insight into the Rwandan situation, please do leave a comment on the podcast post. While the inconsistencies in criteria for attributing deaths to COVID-19 can produce misleading comparisons, total deaths are not open to misinterpretation. Dead is dead after all. Hence, excess mortality, a measure of how many more people have actually died than were expected to die, based on past death counts and current demographic data, can be used to gain insight into the impact of the entire COVID-19 package, the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself, the containment measures imposed by governments which were especially deadly to the poorest of the poor, who rapidly starve if they are prevented from going out to work, the medical treatments applied to those with with COVID-19, and the injections that were supposed to protect people against the disease. Of course, the contribution made by each of these factors can't be teased out of excess mortality data, but at minimum, we would expect that if COVID-19 injections did what they were supposed to do, we should see lower excess mortality in the countries with the highest rates of injection. Now, once again, you really are going to need to, to take a close look at the graphs um, in the Post to This podcast episode, but just to summarise, low injection rate Haiti, Senegal, Malawi, Nigeria, Tanzania, Kenya, Sierra Leone, and Ghana all have lower excess mortality than high injection rate Brazil, the U.S. and Mexico, with highly jabbed Rwanda, once again a bit of an outlier, that is, high jab rate without the elevated excess mortality. Given that, out of the 17 countries being targeted by the Mercury Project, those with the lowest uptake of COVID-19 injections have done the best with respect to both COVID-19 deaths and excess mortality, the claim that the project was motivated by the benevolent desire to protect the public against the damaging effects of health, myths and disinformation is starting to ring hollow. Whatever forms of unsanctioned information the people in countries which largely rejected the injections were exposed to, it doesn't seem to have harmed their health, at least if we can all agree that not being dead might have some utility as an indicator of health. So what did motivate the Social Science Research Council, the SSRC, to commission the Mercury Project? In an interview conducted for Philanthropy Now, SSRC President Anna Harvey fretted that quote, public health experts have been taken aback by the ferocity and virulence of the misinformation the pandemic has unleashed, end of quote. Harvey went on, quote, last year, we thought that by this time this year, everybody would be vaccinated except those who have medical conditions that prevent them from being vaccinated. Just my side note, I have not encountered a single person who has been able to obtain a medical exemption, even when they have a pre-existing medical condition that increases the risk of adverse reactions or have had a previous adverse reaction to the COVID-19 jabs. Harvey goes on, and we would be distributing vaccines around the world, but we're just so far from that goal. It took a while for the realisation to dawn that we were up against something that we hadn't really seen before, end of quote. Something that we hadn't really seen before. You mean people objecting to being misled, cajoled, bribed, coerced or outright forced into receiving an inadequately tested, rushed to market, liability-free experimental injection which neither prevents infection with nor transmission of a virus with a median infection fatality rate of 0.27%? Yeah, I guess we haven't seen that before. But it's not just the widespread and growing resistance to COVID-19 injections that's got the SSRC's knickers in a twist. They're now seeing, quote, pushback against the COVID vaccine feed into, frim- f- feed into formally fringe areas of vaccine resistance, end of quote. According to Harvey, quote, we're seeing legislation in some states to roll back requirements for childhood vaccines. These are things we thought were settled public health initiatives, end of quote. And these quotes from Anna Harvey are from an article called The Global Infodemic Poses Serious Health Risks. Can Philanthropy Help Find a Cure? Yes, as I've reported in several previous articles and podcast episodes, including Are Doctors the New Anti-Vaxxers? Why You Need to Stop Saying I'm Not an Anti-Vaxxer But and Backlash, How the Vaccine pushes Turn True Believers into Vaccine Skeptics Part 1. Once people have woken up to the fact that public health authorities have been blatantly lying to them about the safe and effective COVID-19 shots, many of them start to wonder if they've been just as mendacious about the rest of the vaccination schedule. Go figure. And Ms Harvey and co are not going to sit back and allow people to make their own decisions when it comes to which vaccines they will and won't accept for themselves and their children. You see, you plebs aren't capable of differentiating between health mis- and disinformation and accurate and effective health information, so you need to be properly informed by public health authorities, you know, the ones that told you that the COVID-19 injections were safe and effective. As an example of how important it is that the right people be in charge of disseminating accurate and effective health information, Connie Matheson, author of the Inside Philanthropy article, opened by citing a particularly harrowing example of health misinformation, the promotion of the use of, quote, horse deworming medicine as a cure for COVID, end of quote, Yes, she really, truly wrote that. She really did describe ivermectin, a medicine which won its developers the 2015 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for its role in conquering some of the world's most devastating tropical diseases, and which also possesses broad-spectrum antiviral activity against a plethora of viruses, including Zika, Dengue, Yellow Fever, West Nile, Hendra, Human Immunodeficiency Virus Type 1, and SARS-CoV-2, as a horse dewormer. Pot, meat kettle. By the way, here's how that horse dewormer stacks up as a cure for COVID. There have been 90 studies on the use of ivermectin for COVID-19 conducted by 963 scientists, enrolling 133,842 patients in 27 countries. And the results have been an 83% improvement for prophylaxis, a 62% improvement when it comes to the use of ivermectin in early treatment, and a 39% improvement in late treatment. But I guess Matheson would prefer the treatments promoted by those purveyors of accurate and effective health information such as Monupiravir. 13 studies from 174 scientists enrolling just 8,717 patients in only five countries. An aggregate of all Molnupiravis studies shows a 35% improvement, 47% reduction in mortality, 7% reduction in hospitalization, 15% improvement in recovery, and potential risks include the creation of dangerous variants, carcinogenicity, and genotoxicity. Or maybe Paxlovid? There have been only 14 Paxlovid COVID-19 studies showing an early treatment benefit of 49%, late treatment benefit of 32%, prophylaxis benefit of 37%, with an aggregate of all studies showing just a 38% improvement. Maybe she'd prefer remdesivir. 40 studies, 660 scientists, 129,348 patients in 15 countries. The aggregate of all studies shows a 15% improvement, 16% reduction in mortality, a 17% increase in hospitalization, only a 24% improvement in recovery, and there's a significantly increased risk of acute kidney injury. I'll bet you're glad that purveyors of journalistic truthiness like Connie Matheson are on the side of the people who have tasked themselves with responding to, quote, calls from the World Health Organization, the U.S. Office of the Surgeon General and the Aspen Institute's commission on information disorder, end of quote. Yes, information disorder is a thing. Who knew? To combat the infodemic. That's also a thing which, according to the World Health Organization or WHO, quote, leads to mistrust in health authorities and undermines the public health response, end of quote. But wait, it gets even better. Matheson goes on to cite a fact sheet co-written by the WHO and the Pan American Health Organization, which, in the midst of six pages of blather about people believing stuff they read on the interwebs instead of, quote, trusted sources, end of quote, like themselves, and helpfully illustrated with a dodgy clip art graphic depicting, mm, I don't know, something or other, states, quote, Inaccurate and false information has been circulating about all aspects of the disease, how the virus originated, its cause, its treatment and its mechanisms of spread. All this makes the pandemic much more severe, harming more people and jeopardising the reach and sustainability of the global health system, end of quote. And that was from the fact sheet titled Understanding the Infodemic and Misinformation in the Fight Against COVID-19. You're damn straight there was inaccurate and false information circulating about SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 at the time this fact sheet was published in 2020, and the WHO was one of the most flagrant purveyors of it. The WHO firstly parroted Chinese officials' claims that there was no evidence of human-to-human transmission of SARS-CoV-2 at a time when American journalists who had evidence that the Chinese government was instituting a cover-up were being expelled from that country. The delay in acknowledging human-to-human transmission resulted in rapid global spread of the virus, along with inadequate preparations for its inevitable arrival, thanks to the WHO enabling Chinese Communist Party deceit. Secondly, the WHO effusively praised China's draconian response to the emergence of SARS-CoV-2, which defied all previous guidance on the management of respiratory pandemics, including WHO's own international health regulations, and the WHO encouraged other countries to follow China's lead. Aggressive containment measures have been comprehensively demonstrated to have no discernible effect on reducing serious illness or death in any jurisdiction that enacted them. Thirdly, the WHO dismissed the possibility that SARS-CoV-2 could have escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology after conducting a 12-day fact-finding mission to China over a year after the outbreak began, among the 17 mission members was Peter Darjak, who heads EcoHealth Alliance, the nonprofit which since 2008 has received almost 42 million U.S. dollars in grant funding from the Department of Defense to conduct research on countering biological weapons, much of it funneled to, you guessed it, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Mission leader Peter Ben-Embarek later disclosed that the WHO team was subjected to enormous pressure to not even consider the lab leak theory by Chinese officials, a small army of whom accompanied them at all times. The Chinese only agreed to discuss the possibility of a lab leak 48 hours before the conclusion of the mission, quote, on the condition we didn't recommend any specific studies to further that hypothesis, end of quote. Fourthly, the WHO designed and ran a multi-center, randomized controlled study, the Solidarity Trial, on hydroxychloroquine for the treatment of COVID-19, which prescribed a dose of the drug that is well known to be potentially toxic and even life-threatening. They persisted with this dosage regime even after the Indian Council of Medical Research wrote to WHO to express concern that the hydroxychloroquine doses being used in the Solidarity Trial were four times higher than the doses being used in India. After an excess of deaths was, rather unsurprisingly, observed in patients assigned a toxic dose of hydroxychloroquine, WHO halted the trial and recommended against the use of the drug for treatment of COVID-19. And finally, the WHO denied until well into 2021 that SARS-CoV-2 was spread primarily by airborne transmission rather than respiratory droplets. This seemingly arcane distinction has tremendous implications for public health policy. Namely, any facial masks short of fit-tested N95s worn by everyone all the time are useless. Maintaining some random number of metres of distance from other people is beyond ridiculous because airborne particles can travel many metres in still air. Those stupid plexiglass barriers actually increase the risk of viral transmission by interfering with airflow, which is the most important factor in mitigating airborne transmission and all that hand sanitizing and surface cleaning is almost completely pointless as there's a less than one in 10,000 chance of getting infected by touching a contaminated surface. Given this truly impressive track record of disseminating health myths and disinformation I wonder whether the good folk at the Social Science Research Council should cancel all their grants for such projects as developing quote counter-messaging end of quote to quote emerging health Misinformation. End of quote. On quote English-speaking Twitter. End of quote. Snooping on the WhatsApp networks of Sierra Leoneans to find out if they will persuade each other to get a COVID-19 jab, and brainwashing Indian high school students. Uh, I mean, quote inoculating them against misinformation. End of quote. And study the WHO instead. Why not learn from the masters? But of course, the SSRC's grantees won't be doing that. Instead, they'll be focusing their tender ministrations on those poor, benighted black and brown people in Africa, Asia and Latin America, as well as the knuckle dragging US anti-vaxxers who watch, quote, right wing media figures like Fox News host Tucker Carlson, end of quote, and fall for disinformation from Russian sources, which is apparently pervade primarily via serious lame cartoons, according to this article. And they'll have plenty of lovely grant money to lavish on their worthy projects. The initial $7.2 million in direct research funds was recently topped up with an additional $20 million from the National Science Foundation, a supposedly independent agency of the United States government, which has formed a partnership with the Mercury Project why spend all that dough to find out why people don't want to take injections that don't protect them from getting a disease that they have a vanishingly small risk of dying from don't forget the mercury project is intended to develop quote more effective policy and regulatory responses to current and future public health emergencies end of quote they're investing money now with the aim of reaping the rewards next time around by now I'll bet you are on the edge of your seat to find out just who are the organizations funding the Mercury Project and what are their aims. Don't worry, we'll get to that in part two. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.